Welcome to The Perfect Storm, a bi-weekly podcast for business executives and cybersecurity professionals. Industry veterans Michael Markulek and Matthew Webster chat with guests about the latest cyber news, threats, and trends, and how all of it impacts their businesses. Harbor Technology Group is a cybersecurity consulting firm that offers advisory services to the SMB. Harbor believes by taking a proactive rather than reactive approach to cybersecurity, business leaders can develop a cybersecurity program that will address external requirements, exceed client expectations, and ultimately take their organization to the next level. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Harbor Technology Group's The Perfect Storm podcast. Uh, with me today, I'm really excited to have Lisa Lorenzen. Lisa and I have known each other for, for a long darn time at this point, um, although it had been a while since we had caught up, uh, uh, I guess, last week or two weeks ago, we finally connected after mm-hmm. a number of years. So um, Lisa is uh, one of my favorite people in technology, it goes without saying, um, having spent numerous time days on the road with her working at conferences together really was appreciative of everything she had to say. I learned tons. So I'm really, really stoked to have this conversation. Um, she was recently the field CTO for a company called Zscaler. Um, many of you probably know Zscaler, um, and she was focused on zero trust. Um, but today we're going to talk about the, the modern workplace and how it's evolving. Um, Lisa, Thanks a ton. Um, great seeing you over Zoom. Thanks a ton for for joining us. Well, and the feeling is mutual. I enjoyed the standards work together. I enjoyed traveling with you, and I'm really enjoying the chance to talk to you today too. Uh, that's great. That's great. So, uh, so what do you what do you think? What what's what's the modern workplace look like today? But tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think the pandemic was the perfect storm for remote work, right? Nice, we, nice segue. I like that. I try. <laughs> We really went from a model where some applications were in the cloud, but there was a lot still in the data center. Some users worked remotely, you know, the road warrior cliche is well established, but you still had a lot of on-premise work as well. And then we all went home and that was, you know, terrifying in a lot of ways. And to really understand the full ramifications of that, it helps to think about the evolution of the workplace, where remote work started and how it evolved, because that puts into context then where we are now, where we're heading, and honestly, what it means for information technology and InfoSec. For sure, for sure. Uh, you know, actually, I should, before we get to all of that, why don't you, why don't you give, uh, you know, I know your background, and rather than me telling your background or, or, or reading your CV, uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, where you come from, how you come about this? Yeah, thank you. Well, so I've been most recently focused on zero trust and digital transformation at Zscaler, helping organizations embrace cloud-delivered security services to streamline and simplify secure user access to internal applications and data, to external resources that are necessary but might be dangerous, et cetera. And I've been doing this a while. (laughs) I started out in IT in the late 1990s. Oh, my gosh. I know, right? 
trumpet windsock. If you recognize that, you are also old. (laughs) Um, By the early 2000s, I was running remote user and business-to-business VPNs, virtual private networks, on the firewalls for our local health insurance company. And, you know, if you crank up the Wayback Machine, you said it for 20 years ago in 2002, all of our apps at Blue Cross were in the data center. The vast majority of users were on desktop machines and cubicles. We had these client-to-gateway IPsec VPNs for individual remote access. So if an employee needed to visit another company or you know, visit a customer to help with a claim, they would take a laptop out of a drawer in a file cabinet, go wherever they needed to go. I know, right? Fire up the VPN. When was that last laptop patched? Who knows? Right. And part of the problem here was like pretty much everybody else at that point, we had the M&M security model. We had a hard, crunchy exterior and a really soft interior. Once you got on the corporate network, you could basically go anywhere. And if you left the building, we used these virtual private networks to bring you back onto that corporate network. So I was lucky enough to be on the cusp of one of those first major paradigm shifts in remote work. And that was the SSL VPN, the web-based VPN. They were just starting to take off at that point. And I was so excited about it. This was the point I moved to a company called NetScreen which sold firewalls that did IPsec VPN. And about six months after I started there, we bought a small company called NeoTerrace, which is one of the first SSL VPNs. I remember sitting in the audience at one of the big internal meetings when that acquisition was announced and all the sales guys were golf clapping and the systems engineers (laughs) were on our feet with pom-poms because SSL VPN was just it was simpler for administrators to deploy and maintain. It was easier for users to handle. Indeed. That was the reason that it was the leading technology for over a decade. And so now we get to a point where the admins have an easy way to enable, to control, and to get visibility into this remote user traffic. It all comes through the VPN gateway. You've got a single choke point for logging and for access policies around remote user access to internal applications. And I was just really focused on firewall and VPN at the beginning of my career. Right on, right on. I mean, it's a, it's a great history of, uh, of that remote access world. So, but what about the on-premise access to those apps? That's where zero trust comes in today, right? Oh yeah. And the devil is kind of in the details there, right? So zero trust as a concept was introduced to mean we have zero implicit trust in a user based on what network they're connected to. So another way to say that is we don't trust them anymore if they're sitting at their desk in their cubicle than we do if they're on a laptop working remote. We want the same visibility and the same control for on-net users that we have for remote users. And the first pass at this was a technology called NAC, network access control. So we could do this at layer two, port-based admission control with 802.1x and radius. We could optionally do it at layer three with inline identity-aware firewalls. And the goal for all of this was context-based least privilege access. (laughs) The problem is it was really hard. Right. Network-centric security technologies 
really just weren't designed for that fine-grained approach at scale. I mean, I'm sure you saw some of that when you were at Lumetta in the same time frame, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. We, I mean, the 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 dream and promise of NAC was very cool. I mean, we spent lots of time talking about how network-based security controls could really solve a lot of the problems that we were seeing. But as you've said, it was wildly complex, super hard to do, um, and really ultimately not the appropriate place for it, right? Um, and we, you know, the listeners have heard a little bit about Lumetta uh, over the last few weeks, especially since we've we've had some like good home or, you know, old home week at uh, talking to some, some former colleagues at Lumetta. Um, that understanding the environment, um, it was it, for the large enterprise, such a complex problem because even, even the, the kind of the traditional enterprise model, um, people, just organizations didn't have a good handle of, of what made up their network I'm quoting the air here. So totally. that was it, that, that inherent problem then led to the kind of the, the lack of, of, of wide scale adoption of NAC, right? Right. So you were the visibility side. I was the control side. And you right. and I worked together in the trusted computing group on exactly. that problem. Exactly. And, and boy, that was, that was, that was, I mean, when we would get together and, and get those work groups going, it was super cool to talk about how that all could come, the visibility with the uh, control side all come together. Boy, I tell you what, in a room, it really worked well. <laughs> Around a conference table, it was perfect. Absolutely. We were going to change the world. And that, indeed, that work group, Trusted Network Connect, when it started out, we ended up renaming ourselves to Trusted Network Communications because there was really a change in focus over the decade that I was active in that standards body. We weren't just focusing on what network you were allowed to connect to the way we started out. We were really expanding that focus to what are you allowed to do on the networks you connected to. And it was, it was a lot of years working on a lot of open standards. Some of them got a wide adoption. Others of them, I think were ahead of their time, but I think we did some good work there. We did. We did. And that was quite a decade. There's no question about it. Um, a lot of, a lot of brain power went into, to the work that was being done um, for sure. Um, so where, 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 where our data and apps reside has changed. So how, how, so how do we access or how did we access them back then? Yeah. I mean, you start out in the data center is the center of gravity, right? Right. Almost everything, everything wasn't that there was no cloud. There was a time when there was no cloud hard as that is to believe all the applications were in the data center. I came in past the point when all the users were on premise, but that existed too before VPN. So we came from this world where everything was local. And first we start to see the rise of cloud-based applications. On the app side, you have software as a service where your data is running in an app that someone else is hosting. Then you start to see infrastructure and platform as a service, AWS and Azure, where now your applications are running on someone else's infrastructure. So at the same way, that the VPN enabled the users to get off campus, the cloud delivered applications, the as a service suite meant that suddenly applications could get out of the data center. And at the same time, you know, we started out with laptops, but then smartphones, and tablets and mobile data happened. Right, right. And now you've got more and more users mobile 
And frankly, you know, the SSL VPNs can only take us so far. We start to see that driving a round of security changes. So the next phase of that transformation of the cloud, so our data moved to the cloud in SaaS, our apps moved to the cloud in infrastructure and platform as a service. Then we start to see security services move to the cloud as well. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so cloud proxy was a really good early example. If you think about that data center environment, you've got a bunch of controls on your outbound traffic. You've got a web proxy. You've probably got some kind of antivirus, anti-malware, making sure that users who hit malicious websites don't carry something ugly home with them. Maybe you've got sandboxing, access controls, and you've got a stack of appliances, right? So different vendors, you have to coordinate. They've all got to be managed and maintained. The different interfaces mean that the logs have to be processed independently. There's a lot of work to handle an outbound stack like that. And we started to see the rise of cloud-based secure web gateway services. And that meant, frankly, you just shipped off your outbound traffic to a cloud provider who ran all those functions for you. You have a tunnel or some kind of routing arrangement. And that stack of appliance is now virtualized in the cloud. So it means that you get centralized visibility, a single throat to choke, uh, all of your logging in the same format. It becomes easier to have a consistent experience across your organization. And Secure Web Gateway, I think, was really the leading cloud-delivered security service that made people realize that this could be a real benefit. Then we start to see people say, okay, now we're using a cloud service to protect our outbound traffic, but what about our inbound traffic? What about these VPNs? Hmm? So in the mid 2010s, you start to see a new remote access model. And the initial term for this, ironically, was software defined perimeter. So you remember when we had SDN and SDR, software-defined networks and software-defined radio and software-defined WAN, SD-WAN. Right. So of course we had to have an SDP, software-defined perimeter. And the idea there was instead of connecting an endpoint back to the corporate network, we wanna connect an user to authorized applications via dynamic inline controls. So we wanna put the perimeter between the user and the resource rather than forcing the user to come to a static entry point. And you know, the legacy firewall VPN vendors jumped on this, right? But that model wasn't honestly a great fit because two big reasons. One is a virtual private network. A VPN has a single ingress point. You have to bring them into one place. And that was fine when all the apps were in the data center. Right. But now you have multiple data centers, you have apps in the cloud. So now you're bringing them in one location and then hairpinning them all around the inside of your network to get them to their resources back out to the user. The other problem with that single ingress point is that it's an exposed attack surface. And we saw a bunch of really high profile compromises either of the VPN infrastructure or via the VPN infrastructure. So just one of many examples, Colonial Pipeline. Right. They were compromised due to a poorly protected VPN. And frankly, so a lot of people will crap all over that and say that company was negligent and they should have had more security controls. Again, 
I ran firewall VPNs at Blue Cross. It's really easy to say you should patch this and you should have MFA and everything should be up to date. It's really hard to do that at scale across your entire organization all the time. Yeah, they should have, but it's completely understandable that they didn't as well. Well, security is full of should haves. Um, I mean, that's just the world we live in. We should do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It's super complicated, timely, costly, labor intensive, et cetera. Yeah. So what we see then is as we see these cloud delivered remote access services arise, the appeal is you can connect a user to a cloud backbone and then enable that context-based least privileged access to authorized applications. So this sounds a lot like zero trust, but more flexible. And in a lot of these cases, frankly, the overhead of patching and backups and maintenance moves to the cloud service provider and off of you. So not only is it possibly more secure because you can remove that inbound attack surface in some models, and it's definitely more flexible because you're no longer tied to that single ingress point, but it might also be easier to manage because somebody else is handling the infrastructure for you. And it, Gartner has an interesting viewpoint on all of this, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, SASE is the term that Gartner introduced to talk about this movement of security services to the cloud particularly. So secure access service edge, it's quite a buzzword. And my take and it's on- awfully, It's awfully sassy. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I think they learned their lesson with some of their previous uh, acronyms that they tried to introduce that maybe weren't as successful. Right, right. So the concept of sassy is that you're moving services and controls into the cloud so that you can simplify your premise, whether it's your central location, like an HQ or a data center, or even more importantly, sometimes your branch can get lighter. The idea then is with these cloud delivered services, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. That's a big distinction, sure. whether the user is local or remote. And it shouldn't matter whether your applications are on-premise or in the cloud. You can use this central SASE architecture to enable and protect secure user access. So we've got companies and agencies that are already looking at SASE. You know, they've been looking at zero trust. All these things are mm -hmm. starting to plug mm -hmm. together. Your applications are transforming. Your network is transforming. Your security is transforming. We've got this slow burning digital transformation. And then boom, the pandemic hit and we sent everyone home practically overnight. Now what? So you worked for a cloud security vendor at the time, right? So, so what did you see? What was the reality on the ground, so to speak? Oh my gosh. This was the biggest, fastest, most tectonic shift in almost three decades I've been in IT, frankly. So at Zscaler, we had these outbound and inbound cloud-delivered secure access services. Our outbound secure web gateway, the proxy service, was about a decade old at that point. We had millions of users on it. The inbound cloud-delivered remote access service was only a couple years old. So it had been growing at a steady pace. Let's say in 2018, in 2019, both global user traffic on our inbound service, on our remote access cloud delivered service was growing about 4X. We were quadrupling every 12 months. 
so year over year. In early 2020, in March and April, in a four-week period in March and April, our global traffic grew 12x. We went through the roof. We had ops guys working around the clock. There was what, a point 12, of 12x. That's insane. In four weeks. Insane. And what was happening is a lot of our customers had all of their users had their outbound traffic protected with Zscaler. It's a no-brainer, right? You can let your users surf the web without wondering what they're going to bring home with them. That's right. But they didn't have all their users on the remote access service because not every user necessarily needs remote access if they work primarily or solely in the office. Yeah, up until March 12th, they went to the office. Exactly. Right. So a lot of our existing customers went from 100% outbound traffic and 40% inbound protection to full on. And then we also saw the other big push there was companies who saw that their VPN couldn't scale because you had the crunch in the VPN vendors. Not only did we have the physical hardware crunch, but I read an article at some point that there was one VPN vendor who could not cut digital licenses for VMs fast enough. Wow. And it, it's crazy. I talked to a bank at that point that had their VPN infrastructure could only handle half of their users. So they went through, identified critical users, critical employees could access the VPN from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. Non-critical employees could only access the VPN from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. Wow. How much does that suck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with everything else, you're just like pulling your hair out. Right, yeah. on top of yeah. the entire crazy disruption. So exactly, it, it was a real transition point where organizations really it drove a split in remote access approaches. So organizations that had already started down the road of SASE, generally they had a roadmap and they accelerated that roadmap, right? Yeah, they and, those, and those would be the ones that, that, that 12 X over four weeks, they're, they're in that, that vein. They already were working towards this. Right. Absolutely. I, I see her nodding her head everywhere. Oh yeah. Sorry, yeah. I forget you can't hear me nodding. <laughs> right. Right. But and it's kind of that, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. For sure. Maybe they'd been proposing to expand to remote access and they just hadn't gotten budget for it yet. Or if they only had a small proportion of users on it, they expanded it. But then the flip side, the other side of that split was organizations that really hadn't begun to shift their security services to the cloud, they invested heavily in expanding their traditional, you know, more VPN-based remote access. Because that's, right. what they, that's what they knew, right? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it ain't broke. Don't fix it. Don't right. try to launch something new in the middle of everything blowing up all around us. You can understand that desire. For sure. For sure. And it wasn't necessarily easy for anybody. I mean, we saw some incredible digital transformation success stories, but we also did see some struggles with the new paradigm. Organizations that didn't have a lot of context on their user access couldn't just magically write role-based access policies overnight. So you saw people adopt a cloud-delivered approach without trying to get into the granular zero-trust policies on day one. Maybe they're putting that off till they have the you know, brain power and the time to handle it. Right. And right. then on the other side, some companies that took the traditional approach did well, 
but others, you know, ran into technical debt and scale problems. So, you know, one way or another, we all made it through that transition, but in a lot of different ways. So, so now we're facing the next transition, right? We've, people have started to come back to work, whether they want to or not, they yeah. may be forced to come back to work. Uh, when I say come back to work, come back into the office, we're, yes. we're, we're seeing users come back into the office. There's been this investment in time and resources and money. What, what's, what's, what's happening now? What, what's, you know, now what? Well, I think you hit on an important piece, which is some users are coming back to the office, not everybody. Some companies have embraced work from home. Others are requiring return to office. Some, you know, I'm pouring one out for the engineers at Twitter this week. You know, we just found that or heard that they had been told it was going to be permanent work from home. And now those policies have changed. Right. So it's really a microcosm of users have become accustomed to the convenience of remote work and administrators of these modern access solutions have really unprecedented visibility and control. So the question is, how do we continue that flexibility in this hybrid modern workplace where might be in the office two days a week, at home three days a week. You might have some groups that are on-premise because they have to be and some groups that are work from home because they don't have to be and you're trying to reduce your footprint. And really, I believe that the modern workplace is all over the map and it's our challenge to handle that as gracefully as possible, both from a user perspective and from an operational perspective. Right, right. Which leads to the next natural questions, which is what is what does InfoSec and IT need to do to, to help uh, businesses make these worst place decisions? Is it a technology? Are there technology constraints? Are there business need questions? Like, what do they do? Absolutely. So I've got some high level thoughts and some fairly detailed thoughts, and I'll start Perfect. with the highest level. Prioritize solutions that not only meet your needs today, but also enable your roadmap and your goals for the future. And that requires you to have a roadmap and goals for the future. So you have to be thinking about your organization, your company, your agency, your university. Think about your overall digital transformation. Are you very early in that process? Are you relatively mature? How much change can you handle at one time? What are your top priorities today? And do you have a sense of what they'll be a year from now, three years from now, five years from now? That's all a set of really, frankly, terrifying questions. And you don't have to do this alone. One of the key things to do here is really building relationships with partners. And that could be vendors, it could be integrators, but who can help you explore these questions and bring to the table experience, examples, success stories, lessons learned to help guide you in these considerations. And one of the most important things to do here is to be a little brutally honest about your technical debt. So the sunk cost fallacy often leads organizations to keep high overhead solutions running because we understand this, it works. We've always done it this way. We don't want to have to retrain. Don't, don't fix what's not broken kind of idea, right? Exactly. Completely. But it's a really good opportunity to take a step back and say, what would IT do 
if a meteorite hit your current network and you had to totally rebuild, if you had a totally green field. So in real life, you're almost never going to get the opportunity to do a tree rip and replace. But applying that filter can help you understand what direction you want to steer in as your technologies naturally evolve. And it's not just about the technology either. It's about the conversation. So talking to your peers, seeing what's working for them in your vertical, in your size range. You know, the hallway track at conferences used to be a great place to do this. And that's, you know, just starting to come back and frankly, still a little frightening to someone like me. For sure. But now we have virtual events that have really sprung up everything from CISO summits to vendor user groups to IT executive forums. They might be put on by a vendor. They might be put on by an analyst. You have opportunities to really share information and learn from your peers. And I really encourage finding those conversations and getting involved in them. That's great stuff. And and I think it's it's important to note here that you know, a, a lot of this is looked at through the large enterprise um, filter, let's say, but it really does apply to all companies. Um, totally. You know, mid-sized businesses need to be thinking about what they're going to do next, what their digital transformation looks like, um, how was what was successful with the remote work and and what are their plans for the future as as people are coming back? Do they they need to streamline how they handle both delivering the services that they need to for their users, uh, as well as you know layering security on top of it. It this is not a big company conversation. This is an, the time is right now mm-hmm. uh, for organizations all size to be to consider those you know those five or six things that you mentioned just a few minutes ago about you know what are your transformation goals? Where are you going to be in a year and three years, et cetera? These are the things that that organizations need to to think through uh, because it really, you know, for for all of the, the the trouble that the pandemic caused, and I don't mean to, to understate that at all, it also has has really given us an opportunity to make fundamental shifts in and how we do, you know, how we run our businesses. So all yeah. organizations, regardless of of shape and size, should be considering, you know, what's next from them from a technology perspective. Sure. And in some ways, SMB, the small to medium-sized business sector may benefit even more from leveraging cloud-delivered security services, having a flexible uh, modern workplace because it's less overhead on you. Boy, I can't tell you how many conversations we have just uh, right along these lines. And there is, there's still a, you know, um, it, if, if, if it's not, if it's not broken, don't fix it kind of mentality. Um and, and there's an assumption that the spend is going to be so great when when you really really look closely at the numbers, it, it, in fact, you could save money by making a transformation. Now there there may be a little bit of pain associated, which you know a lot of us really are resistant to change in general because of the the unknown, the pain it may cause, et cetera. But it's this is the right time to be looking at it for sure, for sure. It is. And I think that you know you say there may be some pain associated and and you can't discount people's personal investment on their in their expertise for sure people are going to have to learn new paradigms new technologies new skills and recognizing that recognizing that educating your users and making them in so as much as it's possible part of the process 
retraining and encouraging your existing IT workforce to, you know, not be afraid to try some of these new things. If you've got a culture where if something goes wrong, everybody gets yelled at, it's going to be a lot harder to go through a digital transformation than if you've That's got right. a culture of we're all learning this together. Right. And let's, let's get on this journey together and make this thing successful. Do all the raw, raw stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we're, we're at about 30 minutes, but I, I do want to touch on a couple of things here that we, we uh, kind of noted before we got together. So you're on a transformation journey yourself. Hmm. I mean, you went from being the field CTO for a big, important company to, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to say it kind of tongue in cheek being retired. What's, what's Lisa Lorenzen's transformation look like um, now that you've kind of pseudo left the tech industry at, at a little bit of a level? Yeah. Well, I needed to take a step away. Um, I think that there are a lot of challenges and opportunities. And the first thing I want to acknowledge is that I'm fortunate enough that I was in a fin financial position that I could. Sure. But personally, you know, I was, as you probably remember from our TCG days, I was a road warrior. I was pretty much 80 to 100% travel, depending on, you know, what was going on at the time. And going from that to 100% work from home was a massive transition. Um, the flavor of ADHD I have is really well suited to a travel schedule because it gives me structure. <laughs> Having to figure out how to do that for myself was exciting. Right. And I struggled, honestly, in the pandemic with work-life balance, with understanding, you know, what I needed to do to be able to be in one place for eight hours a day, you know, five days a week, which is a critical thing, first of all. You know, a lot of the IT industry is still focused on 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. And I'm really a firm believer in all of the studies that say the longer hours you work, the less effective you get. Uh, diminishing returns for sure. Hours, right? Yeah, for so sure. So how do I give the best I can offer? What does, what, what kind of self-care do I need to do? What kind of pushback, you know, in some ways, but all of this, and I still burn myself out. And part of it is because I have always said in all of my different roles and different employers, there's three people's worth of interesting work I want to be doing. And there's only one of me to do it. And that's my biggest challenge. Right. And right. I found that, you know, and, and frankly, most organizations will take advantage of that. You know, they will, they will give me as much as I will take on. So I realized that I was really kind of living and breathing technology and zero trust. And I was not putting as much energy as I wanted to be into my family, into my friends, into my personal relationships. And I really needed to take a step back. So my, my husband is also, um, I struggle with the word retired because it seems to imply <laughs> that I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And that right, is really not right, true. Right, right. But, you know, we are currently neither of us working. And, you know, right now the pandemic is still keeping us close to home and that we aren't doing as much travel as we'd like, but climbing, hiking, mountain biking, caving, all the things I love to do outdoors are still, you know, generally where I'm spending time. I've picked up some pandemic hobbies, you know, I'm playing piano, I'm crocheting, and all these things sound like really little mundane things compared to being a field CTO and helping organizations navigate their digital transformation. 
but I'm kind of enjoying it. For sure. We're, we're thinking about what we do next. How do we contribute to the InfoSec community? How do we contribute to our local communities? What do we want? What's important to us? And I think having the space to have those conversations with him to think about it myself is something that, frankly, I haven't taken the time to do in the last 30 years because I was still focused on you know, what I was doing at work. So I'm trying and to put running a million miles an hour, everything and, else. And the pandemic definitely gave, and I, I, I could say this myself, gave us an opportunity to, to take a big deep breath and focus on what really is important because it was scary times. And we were all thrust into a different type of world than we were used to. Yeah. Um, no matter what your world was, even if you were a work from home person in general, your world still changed. Um, Absolutely. So, oh, well, that's great stuff. Well, um, you know, we're always here, or I'm always here to uh, talk tech with you anytime because I really, really enjoy it. Um, Me too. Yeah, for Appreciate sure. Appreciate that. Um, so last question, uh, as we ask all of our guests, um, if you could go anywhere and be on the water and grab a burger or a beer or just, you know, a soda pop, whatever it might be, um, where would you go? What would you do? Well, I and setting, that. The, setting the pandemic and travel concerns aside, if, if there's any lingering concerns there, but in the, perfect yeah. you, well, where I would go is really pandemic proof because I would actually crank up the way back machine again. And I'd go back in time. I grew up on Lake Norman, North of Charlotte in North Carolina. And my dad had a speedboat and on the weekend, he would take us out, my sister, my mom and I and him. And we'd go out for burgers at the local marina, um, Holiday Harbor. And, you know, as kids, this was an excursion. It was really exciting. The boat was so fast and they had a bunch <laughs> of fish. It's embarrassing. I don't even know what they were. They were probably carp or something that knew that people would throw them French fries. And so you would take, I, I think I never ate more than like two or three French fries because the entire set of French fries would go over the railing and you'd just see this boiling pool of thrashing fish fighting for them. And we'd be out there, you know, the smell of suntan lotion and the sunshine and bathing suit and the, the wind on the boat and burger has never tasted so good. So I would go back to Holiday Harbor on Lake Norman with my family. Well, first of all, um, for those of you that can't see Lisa right now, you wouldn't believe the grin across her face. Obviously, uh, it is something that she is, that Wayback Machine is a really fun thing right now. So is Holiday Harbor still around? Nope. I, okay. you know, I actually tried to look them up online to make sure I remembered the name correctly. And not only are they not around, there is literally no trace of them on the internet. I texted my mom and I'm like, <laughs> hey, mom, do you remember the name of that marina we used to go to? Amazing. And and she had to think about it. And when she came up independently with the same name as I did, I figured I was probably. That's there. great. That's great. So pre-internet, can you imagine? That's I can't imagine actually. So Lake Norman is a great place to be, but uh, we'll we'll note that as the way back machine. And if 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 it was thirty years uh, in the past, um, simpler times maybe. Definitely. Um, well, that's great. That's great stuff. Well, Lisa, um, I really appreciate the time. It's been super fun talking to you about this. Um, it's been super great to uh, to reconnect as well, which is uh, really the more important thing here. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you, and I'm glad that we had this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. 
Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. We would also like to thank Tom Marshall for the original music. Yes, that Tom Marshall from Fish fame. Harbor's portfolio of services is designed to meet the cybersecurity needs of small and medium enterprises. We offer a range of services from cyber risk advisory to VCSO consulting to meet specific security requirements without putting a strain on your technology budget. If you like what you heard here, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. We release new podcasts every other week and are available on Spotify and Apple. You can reach us through our website if you have additional questions or suggest a great harbor we should mention on our next show.